It's go time. Welcome everyone to Third Down Gamble. I'm Don Charbon along with Heath Graham and in from the wilderness, we don't know from parts unknown where he's been, Pat Mooney. It's a secret. Don't tell anyone. Okay, I guess I better not release this podcast. Penalties are one thing. When you get 10 to 12 to 15 in a game, it slows the game. People get frustrated. Misconduct penalties kind of go into a different realm. And really, for the first time this season, we started to see them. We did. I didn't think that it would uh, happen maybe as quickly as it did where we have a disqualification, but uh, we certainly saw teams lose discipline this week. And the disqualification on top of that is definitely not a trend we want to see continue. There was more than one ejection this weekend, which is pretty unusual in CFL weekends, but Derek Moncrief ejected in one game and we had two players ejected in the other one, Dejon Allen and Trey Watson in the Argonauts-Alouettes game. So it's good, in my opinion, to see the referees cracking down on these types of things already. And hopefully it keeps the play clean as we move forward. I love the fact that they are clamping down on post-whistle fouls, objectionable conduct, whatever. Fine by me. I just wish, though, that that would go into the other arena, which is during the play when a player commits a major foul. I know you can be elevated to a disqualification, major foul disqualification, 25 yards. But if you get two major fouls in a game, I think that should be tantamount to two misconducts in a game. I don't disagree with that. If you want to get discipline under control, I think you send a strong message that this is how we're going to call the game and maybe the players will snap around and get control. Again, we talk about protecting the star players and cutting down on the number of injuries. And you're right, Don, during the play, some of those rough plays are uncalled for and very dangerous. And certainly the shenanigans that go on after a play, all the extra pushing and shoving, little shots here and there, seem to be what the league has focused on cracking down on so far this season. And we saw that this past weekend for sure. The interesting one for me was the Derek Moncrief situation because it seemed to be building and building and building. Something had triggered him. It just wasn't something that he could shake. And whether there was some intensity, something being said to him, whatever the case may be, he got into it one too many times and he got caught and he got tossed. Deserved it? Yes. But it was a surprise to me. And you wonder if there was something underlying in all of that. It shouldn't matter. And that's the point I think that the league made in kicking him out of the game. You need to control your emotions. Your inability to do so ends up costing your team in the long run. Derek Moncrief is a phenomenal player and a big loss for the Rough Riders in that game. Absolutely. He made a big interception not long before he had those misconducts that that got him ejected. And, And Don, I think your point is valid. Potentially, he had some bad blood with some of the teammates he would have had the year before. He's trying to show that hey, I'm here, it's a big, exciting game when you're returning to the the team from which you came. But at the same point, he does have to be under control. I thought he maybe got baited into it. There were times where the other players were saying something and he's the one who responded. And that's where players need to stop. 
it also continued later in the game when you had someone like Sir Vincent Rogers, where it looked like the referees even gave him a verbal warning beforehand, and he continued to make some rude gestures and picked up another objectionable conduct. And I'm I'm concerned when you see that happen, particularly with the same team over and over, like the Riders. Uh, they've got to get under control, and the coach, I think, has to step up and do something about that. It's sort of the old adage, and I'll have to give... Um CKRM Radio, the the nod for this, if you don't address the behavior, the behavior will continue to run its course. You can't expect a change without making a change. The Rough Riders, the Elks, the Argonauts, the Alouettes, Tiger Cats, name any of the nine teams. Each one has to be on top of the players, teaching them appropriate measures to respond, given that someone is trying to intimidate you verbally it appears it's any kind of after the whistle shot towards the face mask is what's going to get you in trouble and and potentially tossed whether it's a deliberate active throw of a punch or more of just kind of a a shot towards the face it, it seems to be what they were throwing the flags for and those extra little shoves in a pile things like that that are very dangerous and it's it's time for the league to take them serious and three ejections over the course of one weekend might be a wake-up call for a lot of these teams to get those players in check. It's more of a message, I think, for the rest of the players on the field, wherever they are and whatever game in which they participate, that you've got to be in control. You cannot let your emotions run wild. It's great to be jacked. It's great to be pumped. It's great to be excited. But if you do not have a measure of control, you're going to find yourself in the showers. There was one objectionable conduct in the game where uh, Garrett Marino picked up an objectionable conduct for what looked like some sort of verbal comment. And we certainly know the players have a lot of verbal comments. We're not privy to what was said, but I think the beaking that goes on between players is a natural part of the game. And to see that one called, I guess I was a little surprised. I do get what you said, Heath, a shot to the head uh, when it's physical, even the obscene gesture that we saw Sir Vincent Rogers. Those are all things that I would expect someone would get an objectionable conduct for. But again, we're not privy to exactly what was said. But I question how does a ref get into that? What is said between players in the trenches? When do you call that? When don't you call that? Essentially, if you're trying to diminish your opponent with words, and I think there is a pretty simple line that if you cross it, you know you're in trouble for it. And it doesn't necessarily have to require expletives. But it does require some sort of verbal tirade that's directed at, we'll call it, the personhood of the other player. So beyond trash talk is what you're talking, Don. Anything potentially racially motivated, sexually motivated, etc., that seems to be the line that you cannot cross. I'm, I'm sure for decades that was acceptable in a lot of professional sports leagues, but we start to see it time and again where people do make these hateful comments that are not tolerated anymore. And this is the kind of result that comes from it. The CFL strongly supports diversity. We cannot have stereotyping or conjecturing on the field from players to players that does anything to diminish that person's humanity. I think one other discrepancy that I may have seen on that play too is Marino wasn't necessarily involved in it. We often see a receiver and a DB kind of talking to one another after the play, but Marino wasn't really involved in it and marched over to make the comment as opposed to him being side by side with the player in that moment. 
And that could be, it's almost like a tourist block in that sort of sense where you're getting involved in something you need not be a part of. It It's something that every league has to face. It doesn't matter if it's the CFL, the NFL, hockey, whatever. You've got to cut this before it gets too far or you're going to be in trouble later because then how far do you let it go before you step in? The, the league, I commend them, is stepping in quickly. I think doing this early in the season will set a tone for players and they'll know where the line is and hopefully we see this clean up. One other thing that was a question coming out of the weekend's play, when is a runner stopped by definition when they're carrying the football? And this goes back to the Hamilton game where Dane Evans appears to be sort of mired in the pile as he's trying to get a first down. The ball is taken from his hands and the Stampeders run it 35 yards the other way to score a touchdown. The question at the time was, well, wasn't he stopped? He didn't seem to be moving anywhere. That one's a judgment call by those officials and very tough to decide. We see quarterbacks or running backs appear to be stopped and at the last second managed to break free and gain a couple of yards. This one, it didn't seem to me that Dane Evans was getting anywhere anytime soon. I'm a bit surprised that that play was not whistled down earlier. However, you do play until the whistle. There wasn't a whistle to stop that play, and Titus Wall made the heads-up play to grab the ball out of Dane Evans' hands and run it back for a touchdown. I do agree that forward momentum may have been stopped, but when the play went to review, I think that is hard to change. It's a scoring play, so it obviously went to review, but it's hard to change a judgment call when you can't tell specifically when the whistle went, when it did not go. So it's definitely going to help quarterbacks to understand that we've got to secure that ball 100%. You you know, a heads-up play, but I think the whole league will now be watching to make sure that we hold on to that ball. Dane Evans was continuing to to move his feet on the play. He wasn't fully in the grasp of anybody from Calgary's defense either. So I guess by that determination, you can say it was still in play and still live. Until the whistle sounds. And I imagine in the booth, they're trying to listen for a whistle. They would also be checking with all the officials. Did you blow your whistle? Did you, did you, did you? And if no one did, then that play stands. There's nothing upon which you can look to and say that play doesn't result in a touchdown. That's as we started with Heath, you're right on. It's a judgment call by the people on the field. They have the propriety to blow that whistle when they feel the play is stopped. I I think I'm sometimes too quick to judge officials for, for a quick whistle. So I can't really sit here and criticize them for a late whistle in this situation. Some of those plays where it's a potential fumble, a, a catch and fumble, things like that, that they will whistle down and call an incomplete pass. And they're, they're quick to make that call. And when you see the review, it probably cost the defending team a score if they were successful in that fumble recovery and return. So in this case, not blowing the whistle was probably the way to go. One other sidelight that I'd like to get into from the weekend, and this and this comes down to the end of that game between Saskatchewan and Edmonton, where Edmonton gets called for an offside with eight seconds to go in the game. They're down by 10. It's announced that the Riders decline the penalty. As such, then the 
game clock and the 22nd clock would be wound and this would be the final play. For uh, some inexplicable reason, after Jones initially, Chris Jones initially sends his kicking team out there, he wants to have a discussion. So Al Bradbury comes over. It takes four minutes and two seconds to get the next play run. How is that possible? I wish I knew because it certainly disrupted the flow of the game. And it's something that I think the CFL, by putting an official on the sideline with the head coach, has tried to avoid situations exactly like this. To not even have it explained, I think, was the other side. My assumption was that maybe the sideline official had closed his gates, not allowing for the substitution. It disrupted the game totally. And I don't know what Jones was up to. I don't understand. The game was over. He had lost. There was nothing he could do to score 11 points on that final play. Nothing that I know of in the rule book that allows you to score twice. As such, you either throw for the end zone, which is what they ultimately did, or kick the field goal and think of the season series and cut the spread down. For whatever reason, he chose to throw the Hail Mary, and they call it a Hail Mary because it's a low chance of success. The field goal would have made more sense. Did he choose, or was it Ray Bradbury that came in and said, you can't have the field goal team on you need to go back to offense so he was forced to put that back on that that's what i took from watching that and that could be what led to the delays ray bradbury is a great writer but al bradbury was the one on the field he as the head official only needs to put the hand up and say no you cannot substitute and move on but this isn't the first time that al bradbury's been caught in a long-winded final play of a game situation you go back to August the 2nd of 2018, this is the Argonauts and the Ottawa Red Blacks. For some inexplicable reason, we have to wait five minutes for the Argos to finally try their game-winning touchdown attempt. But there's Al Bradbury in the middle of it again. He needs to step up as an official. At some point, you have to know the rule book enough to know this isn't going to happen. Keep moving. Second down. Final attempt by the Alouettes to win the game in Toronto when David Cote's field goal goes wide. A lot to unwrap in that football game. You can pick and choose wherever you want to start. Let's go with quarterback change. Giving a player of Vernon Vernon Adams caliber only four pass attempts before you pull the plug on him is a very, very short leash. I don't know exactly what Kahari Jones and the coaching staff for the Alouettes saw from Vernon Adams that early in the game, but they did not like it and quickly went to Trevor Harris to change things up. I question whether that does something to the confidence of Vernon Adams Jr. to be hardly given a chance, as you allude to, Heath, and you're sitting on the sideline wondering, what did I do wrong without having much opportunity to get in, correct it, get into the game flow, I mean, is Coach Jones getting a little trigger happy because the pressure's on to win? Kahari Jones, I fully believe so. And having a, a quality backup quarterback like Trevor Harris in the mix as well. He's a he's a proven quarterback in the league. I know we can sit here and debate his his greatness or lack thereof. The fact of the matter is he has been a starter in the CFL for a number of seasons as well and is, is quite capable. So it's not a huge drop off going to an unproven guy. And that might play a little bit into that decision-making as well. 
there's pressure from the GM spot in Montreal. Danny Machocho was a former coach. He took a team to the Grey Cup. He took a college team to the Vanier Cup. He knows how to win. We don't know what the relationship is between him and Kahari Jones, but if Danny Machocha is eyeing up that position to be a dual-role person, then Kahari Jones is probably feeling the heat. And it looked like it with a couple of decisions that were taken in that game. The first being, obviously, the Vernon Adams pull, and the second was the third and ten on his own side of the field very late in the game. Now, they did get the first down, and they marched down the field, but... They had enough time, had they punted, to still have another shot. I liked that call. Uh, sometimes coaches depend too much on the defense. This was showing some confidence in the offense that, yes, we can get it done. We're going to hang on to the ball and we're going to do our job. And they delivered on that on that aspect. It's kind of like pulling the goalie in an NHL game. When's too early? When is too late? You've got to take your chances when you're feeling it. And in this case, it worked out. Montreal had chances getting the ball with plenty of opportunities to put points on the board. And yet Harris didn't come through to do that for them when they were needing to do that. So, um, you know, I'm not sure that in retrospect, the decision to pull Vernon Adams Is that the best decision? Have we created a quarterback controversy? Obviously, this week, it's not going to happen. Now that that Vernon Adam Jr. has COVID-19, he's not going to be able to play. But I do wonder what decision Coach Jones will make in the future and how Kahari Jones will determine who his starter is. I wonder if Kahari Jones makes that same decision third and ten if Eugene Lewis isn't out there as a receiver. Because he's the guy that caught the ball. He gets seven for 127 in the football game, long of 42. That guy is a monster in terms of his ability to make the tough catch. And if you can rely so heavily on one man to do that for you, that is a gift. It is. It certainly puts some confidence in the team. And we saw last year, Eugene Lewis was right up there as one of the best receivers in the league. And he certainly seems to be continuing that this year. A sure-handed receiver that you can go to late in the game is worth every penny that you invest in them. Now, going back to the final field goal attempt, Montreal seemed to be all confused as to whether or not they were going to run the clock, take the timeout, run the clock, take a delay of game, or just run through and get the kickoff before the clock ran out. There seemed to be a lot of angst, and I don't know that that helped David Cote. A 21-yard field goal, your odds of making it are probably 9.8 out of 10. This is such, such a rare miss, and I feel bad for Cote because he was 4 or 5, or 4 or 4 going into that kick, and just hooked it. And if any of you golf out there, it's the same sort of thing. If you don't meet the ball square, you're going to spray it somewhere. And that's exactly the same thing with a kicker. My first thought was perhaps the placement wasn't done well, but certainly on the replay, everything looked fine. And like you said, he just, he just hit the ball wrong. It could have been nerves. We all have them. We all go through it. I feel bad for the man because relatively speaking, he did everything but that one play to get Montreal into the winner's circle. Andrew Harris, 18 carries for 87 yards. But he left the game with a lower back injury. He did. And this was the 
argument with the Winnipeg Blue Bombers of did they let him go a year too early? He had some injury concerns last season. Hopefully he comes back healthy out of this, but it's not a good sign to see him on the sidelines this early. Before the injury, though, I was quite impressed with Harris on the field. I thought he was an outstanding running back and he was doing exactly what he was hired to do. So hopefully he does get back and continue to help Toronto with the run game. McLeod Bethel Thompson goes 22 of 31 for 269 and a touchdown, one interception. Trevor Harris, quarterback of note, although Vernon Adams will be charged with the loss the way the universe works in terms of who's attributed. Trevor Harris goes 18 of 30, 270 yards and an interception. Montreal is in a bad way right now. The worst thing you want is a coach that doesn't know what his future is going to be because Kahari Jones, let's face it, is on an expiring contract. He's not renewed beyond this year. And now you've got controversy with your starting quarterback. I wonder what the mindset was with Vernon Adams Jr. back in December. Trevor Harris gets the release he wants so he can test the free agent market. Certainly when a coach and team invests in you, you're hoping that this is your team. And we go back to 2021, where we were quite excited about the possibility of Montreal's offense behind Vernon Adams Jr. taking that next step. There seemed to be a bit of a regression last year. Uh, potentially, that's why we brought Harris in when, when he was injured and couldn't go for the playoffs. Harris was able to step in and had a good game. Coming back, I think that puts a seed of doubt in the quarterback's head, particularly when he's not clearly identified as the starting quarterback and it's a quick hook in the second game we shall see how this plays out in montreal they've got a big contest coming up on thursday friday night the blue bombers and the red blacks finish off their home and home again ottawa does well on the stat sheet they just can't put it together on the scoring sheet losing 19 to 12 to the blue bombers and the one thing that was fairly evident in this football game was that Winnipeg could finish drives in the end zone. Ottawa would finish drives with a field goal. It seemed like a almost a replay of week number one between these two teams. Ottawa puts up all sorts of offensive numbers, can't seem to finish the drives. Winnipeg certainly wasn't flashy on offense by any means, but once again did what they had to do. Jeremiah Mazzoli, 27 of 38 for 331 yards. Two weeks in a row, he's chucked over 300 yards against that Winnipeg defense and comes up empty-handed. Zach Galeris, 15 of 22 for 228. Fairly pedestrian, but got the job done. Two touchdown passes. Once again, not a huge running game for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Better than they were in week one. And they did seem to split things up a little bit more between Brady Oliveira and Johnny Augustine with Brady getting 14 carries and Augustine getting seven. I like what I've seen from Johnny Augustine so far this season. I think he brings a different kind of energy to that running game. So I would really like to see Winnipeg utilize those two as a more even split than they seem to be doing right now and try to really ignite that that offense. The running game has been really important for Winnipeg over the last several years. And with them not really having a scary receiving core. I think it's important to establish that again. I think we see a case where Winnipeg as a veteran team knows how to win, but I must say I have been extremely impressed with Ottawa. Their defense, I thought, played very well for the first half. Uh, maybe had a few slips in the second half, but that's inexperienced potentially. But I do think Ottawa 
has put a bit of a scare into the Bombers in two successive games. And a lot of credit to them because we're, we're all expecting that Winnipeg could be the dominant team in the West. Ottawa racked up 425 yards of offense. Over the two games, almost 840 yards of offense for the Red Blacks. It appears the Winnipeg defense just knows how to play that shutdown when it matters as well. They are a team, even last year when they were near record-breaking for the number of points given up, were not afraid to give up yards in a game. It's just that they had this barrier across that goal line and would not allow teams to score and get back into those games. We talked about ball security with Dane Evans prior when Titus Wall stripped him of the football. Well, Jackson Jeffcoat made his presence felt on a gamble by the Red Blacks. Jeremiah Mazzoli dove into the line, didn't protect the football. Jeffcoat comes around the side, knocks it free. It's recovered by Ottawa, but it's behind their line of scrimmage, and they are turning the ball over on downs. The other problem that La Police had was, again, at the end of the first half, not managing the clock. And I'm wondering why he's so reticent in using a first-half timeout to save time to get points. To see that same type of mistake in two successive games does make you wonder if Paul La Police is able to think ahead of the game and determine. Like, you'd never want to see a team leave points out and... With his decisions, he has left potential points on the board twice. Third game of the weekend, probably the game of the weekend. The Calgary Stampeders go into Hamilton, spot the Tiger Cats a 24 to nothing lead, and find a way to come all the way back and win in overtime. 33 to 30. The best way to describe it, it was just a thriller. It's also... If you're a Hamilton supporter or if you're on that team, what is your mindset right now? What has just happened? This this is the team that won the East two straight years. This is the team that lost in overtime in the Grey Cup. And this is the team that is 0-2 right now. It was a real tale of two halves in this one. Hamilton looked like a very, very solid team in that first half. And then in the second half, nothing really went their way. Calgary played a great game as far as the taking advantage of the wind when they had it, putting up 20 points in the fourth quarter to force that one into overtime. And once again, it was a tipped pass interception in overtime, just like the Grey Cup. That was the end of this one. It's the second time that Sean Thomas Erlington has been involved in a situation where a bobble by him has cost him a football game against Alouettes in the overtime last year. Ball is handed off to him. The exchange is poor. It bounces forward. The Alouettes recover. Game over. In this game, it's a pass. He tips it up. Jameer Thurman gets the interception, snuffs out any chance for the Tiger Cats to win the game. And it's something that I know Derek Taylor has said, and we we just need to rethink this a little bit. Teams that take the ball first win more times than not in overtime. Go back to the Grey Cup last year. Yeah, it sets your team up. If you go out there and you you get the touchdown, you put the pressure on the other team. If you are held to the field goal, then your defense goes back onto the field knowing what they have to do in order to win the game. I think the predominant thinking would be if you can only get a field goal, then you have the advantage to potentially go for a win. But certainly 
in the last two games that Hamilton's gone into overtime, that has not worked in their favor. And as you say, Don, the odds would say that we need to change the thinking a little bit as a coach. I like when teams are aggressive and say, we're going to take the ball. We're going to show you how it's done. We're going to score seven and put some pressure on you. I think if you have confidence in your offense at that time, or you're on a roll to get there, it's not a bad option to take. The other thing that I didn't understand was that Hamilton put Calgary on offense first. Well, their defense had just finished a long tour against them. So they were already tired. Wouldn't it have been better to flip the script a little bit and have your offense go out and give your defense a rest? You're, you're right. It would have made the most sense. And I, I like Pat's comment there. It harkens back to an old NFL game where the coin toss, we're going to take the ball and we're going to score. And that is certainly what the thinking was for the Calgary Stampeders and it worked out for them and not so much for the Tiger Cats. Well, the choice was made for them by the Tiger Cats. It made it pretty simple. Well, Calgary, all they had to do was go out and score. And it doesn't really matter what you score. If you score three or if you score six plus two or just six, you're putting pressure on the other team because they are now behind. It doesn't and I don't. I was thinking about this at the time when Hamilton took over the ball. What is their mindset? Are they going for the tie first and trying to score the touchdown to win secondarily? Is it a good spot to be in with that sort of in your mind? Dane Evans, 36 of 51 for 425 yards. Bo Levi Mitchell for the first time in a long time. 28 of 42 for 313, that elusive 300-yard barrier that was a domain of Jake Mayer for... A little while last year, Bo has finally broken through. Very unfortunate incident. Peyton Logan was concussed when Tundal Adelike went for the ball, as did Logan, and they collided, and Logan lost out. And it was uh, very, very, very rough to watch. Uh, very unfortunate, too, that one of the players tried to pick him up, which is the worst thing you can do with a concussed individual. Clearly, the player wasn't aware. They wouldn't have done anything, but I think it was just the excitement. Hey, get up, get up. You got to get up. It was very scary. And another incident that seems to have turned out okay, but was was a scary moment, was the Mike Rose horse collar tackle on Dane Evans. There was a challenge on the play as to whether it was a horse collar tackle or not. What it boiled down to was it was a dangerous tackle. We saw Evans' leg kind of fold awkwardly underneath him. He got up hopping around, but seems to have recovered and is good to go for this week. You can't necessarily define a horse collar by the exact spot on the jersey that you grab someone from behind. The bottom line is Rose pulled on the jersey right around the nameplate and pulled Evans backwards, which meant that he was extremely vulnerable. I love the call. I'm going to go back to this game. And, and I think a variance that, that we maybe need to point out is, well, Winnipeg, who has been best in the West for the last couple of years, has been able to pull out those tough games. Hamilton has been in the games effectively for three quarters of the, the game in each of the last two games and had fairly solid games defensively, even up to that point. But the fourth quarter, they have not played like a veteran team. They seem to have imploded when it comes down to crunch time. And I'm, I'm wondering why that is. Is there a lack of leadership? Is it just poor coaching? I'm not sure because you certainly see Winnipeg stepping up and doing what they need to do to get over where Hamilton, who's been best in the East, just hasn't done it in these first two games. Jagera Davis is no longer there and he was a major disruptor along that defensive line. Injuries in the secondary as well, hampering them. 
it is a question. It's not so much that the offense that has faltered. It's the defense that has allowed these runs in the fourth quarter. Two big touchdowns by the Rough Riders opening night. Stampeders score lots in the fourth quarter to win in Hamilton. 20 points. That's that's a lot to give up in 15 minutes. It is, and yet for three-quarters of the game, their defense seems pretty solid and seems to be in control. In both the Saskatchewan game where they, they held and now this game, they seem to do fairly well. Granted, the wind played a factor in this game. They, they've got to come up with something to be able to sustain 60 minutes of football, particularly defensively. Kamar Jordan, seven receptions for 109 yards for the Stampeders. Reggie Bagleton and Luther Hakavananu scored touchdowns. Erlington and Stephen Dunbar and Tim White scored for the Tiger Cats. Rennie Paradise, if there was any sort of worry about his mindset after the West semifinal, he is coming through in flying colors, made everything in sight in Hamilton in spite of the wind. Another tough loss when we get discussing injuries, Kadeem Carey only had two carries in that game before going down injured and one reception. So if it's if he's gone for any length of time, that's the second star running back that we have seen on that injured list in the first couple of weeks with Montreal losing William Stanback in week number one. Kerry is practicing again and he expects to be starting this week. That's good news. Stampeders are, it's two now that they've won very, in very difficult fashion. I mean, they've only won a, by a total of six points in two games, but they're on the good side of the ledger. I think one of the questions I had coming into the season was, can Boleva Mitchell return to his old form? And he seems to have at least gained some confidence in this game when he had a, such a great second half, particularly the fourth quarter. Ticats racked up 499 yards of offense, Calgary 378. Stampeders are finding a way, and truthfully, in any sport, finding a way is maybe the most important thing you need to learn. The final game of the weekend. Rough Riders in Edmonton to take on the Edmonton Elks. Elks come up with a far better game. Lose only 26-16 to the Rough Riders. Saskatchewan did get their running game going. Jamal Morrow with 17 carries for 126 yards, but a huge loss for the Rough Riders late in that game. Dan Clark, their center, has been with the club for 13 years. Broken fibula and dislocated ankle. He is gone. I think that's going to be a devastating loss for Saskatchewan. We've had questions about their offensive line, and when you lose your center, who effectively is your quarterback, uh, all-star level player, and... Obviously, the heart of the team, when you see how many people came forward to uh, offer condolences, I think this is going to really be a turning point for Saskatchewan to determine whether they can stay in the games or not. Logan Bandy is the replacement. He was drafted by the Riders in 2021, fifth round, 38th overall from the University of Calgary. He went back to school. One bright point for the Edmonton Elks in this game was Kenny Lawler, the now highest paid receiver in the league played like one with 12 receptions, 149 yards, and so far the best touchdown reception of the year with a remarkable catch at the back of the end zone. It was a phenomenal catch. And, uh, you know, Lawler was certainly his go-to 17 attempts his way. Uh, you start to wonder, is Arbuckle looking at anyone else out there? But Lawler certainly 
played well this game. Emmanuel Arsenal had a 66-yard pass reception when he was wide open because of a miscue in the Rough Rider secondary. Caleb Hawley had two receptions. They did spread the ball around, but the lion's share clearly goes to Lawler, 12 for 149 and a TD. The Rough Riders tried to get Shaq Evans going. He got five catches for 81 yards. Edmonton kept throwing a three-man front against Cody Fajardo. He certainly had happy feet in the pocket. There were times where I think if he would have stayed in for a second or two longer, he may have had the opportunity to complete a pass, but he certainly seemed spooked. And that should not happen when you've got a three-man front, which again begs the question of if Dan Clark's not there, is that even going to be worse for them in the future in terms of protecting Cody Fajardo? I wonder if all the chatter from Chris Jones earlier where he didn't think that Cody Fajardo was a top-flight quarterback in this football game. He only rushes three, so he's not going to be under pressure, but he's saying to him, even with all the time in the world, you still won't be able to get past our defense. It certainly wasn't a prototypical Chris Jones defense, which I think generally goes on the attack, but it may also be that Chris Jones doesn't have the horses to do that at this point. Certainly a better game all around for Edmonton, as you mentioned, compared to what we saw in week number one. They still only managed to put 16 points on the board. However, Nick Arbuckle did throw for over 300 yards, looked a lot more comfortable in this one. We'll see where they go from here, but nowhere to go but up after that that week one loss in BC. Deceptively, the Rough Riders had 431 yards of offense. Edmonton had 360. As much as this was a kind of a brawl in many ways, there was some offense to enjoy. Your use of the word deceptively certainly is prudent because it just didn't seem like there was as much flow in this game. It seemed like nothing could really get going. And then suddenly you've got 26 points on the board by Saskatchewan and Edmonton's responded with 16. It's a good game offensively for both teams. Third down. Week three in the CFL opens with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders on a short week going to play the Montreal Alouettes. Of note, no Eastern team has won a game against the West this year. Will things change in Montreal? Until I read that Vernon Adams Jr. was out with COVID, I was leaning towards Montreal in this one. They are also going to be without touchdown Jake Wenicky. Another key loss for them. So I have flipped the script and have gone back to favoring Saskatchewan in this one. I too am favoring Saskatchewan in this one. I do think that it will be a close game, but I think Saskatchewan should continue that trend of West beating East. I have a tough time with this one because Saskatchewan traditionally doesn't play well in Montreal and it's a short week. The Rough Riders played Late Saturday night, they're only going to have one practice before they head to Montreal. Now, Dekeel Williams will be back in the lineup. That's going to be a huge help for that offense. But we've already addressed the fact that Dan Clark is not going to be there at center. Logan Bandy will be. Montreal is dying to change the narrative. And if they're going to do it, they have to start now. For that to be successful, it's going to have to be Trevor Harris to Eugene Lewis a lot. Well, we saw it with Kenny Lawler that the Rough Riders will give you somebody. They will. Montreal does have other receivers that I think could 
open things up, but Eugene Lewis is such a outstanding receiver that you know Saskatchewan in their one practice is likely going to set up some kind of key on him and see if they can shut down that connection. I'm leaning towards the Alouettes and the upset. The Alouettes are 2.5 dogs against Saskatchewan. It's a road favorite. I'm never thrilled about that. The other key for Montreal is to reestablish the running game. In week one, we saw Stanback get off to a good start and go down injured. Deshaun Antwi came in in relief and had a great game in week number one. Not so much in week number two. So for Montreal to have a chance, as I said, Trevor Harris to Eugene Lewis, and they need to get Antwi involved in that offense and mix things up a little bit. At this point, I am going Saskatchewan to cover the spread. An interesting tidbit is Montreal has actually started seven different quarterbacks in each of the last head-to-head meetings with Saskatchewan. Having Harris step in, I think, is, is, is good for them because of the experience he brings. I think it will be a close game, but I do think Saskatchewan should be able to cover this. So I'm taking Saskatchewan to cover. Harris is, I think, the consummate definition of a streaky quarterback. If he gets hot, it can be lights out. If he's not... Rough Riders win in a walk. Friday night, again, an Eastern club against a Western club. The Blue Bombers at home, 4.5 favorites. I think that's light. Winnipeg at home, they just don't lose. They don't give up a lot of points, but they have not really put up a lot of points this season so far either, and that's the biggest concern in my mind. They had two very close games against the Ottawa Red Blacks. They did what they had to do to win both of those games. At some point, this offense needs to get rolling to complement what the defense is capable of doing week in and week out. And at this point, I'm hesitant to believe that they are going to get rolling. This is my upset of the week. I am taking Hamilton with a chip on their shoulders from having lost the two consecutive Grey Cups to Winnipeg, going into Winnipeg this week and upsetting the Bombers. Wow, Heath, I'm surprised that you're doing that, but good for you. I, I, I'm actually going to go the other way. I, I think that Winnipeg will be able to cover this point spread. I think they're going to come in knowing that this was the former number one club in the East and really put it to them when they're down. Hamilton needs this win. They're going to come in with a lot, but I think the fans in Winnipeg are also going to be able to support that team. I'm going to take Winnipeg to win, and I do believe that they're going to be able to cover that spread, which may be a bit of an upset in and of itself. If there's ever a game that I hope I'm wrong, it's this one. I would be completely fine with mispredicting this one and watching Winnipeg offense light up and drop 40 on them. I don't see how Hamilton is going to be a challenge in this game. Winnipeg at home, I don't see how Hamilton can win. Winnipeg wins and covers. Saturday night, The Edmonton Elks are in Calgary to play the provincial rivals. Stampeders coming off a big overtime win. The Elks losing at home again. Quick little tidbit. It will be at least 999 days between home victories for the Elks. This game to me is Calgary's game. They are going to run away with this one and cover the spread against Edmonton. Bo Levi Mitchell had a 300-yard game. He's got his offense rolling. A very big second-half win for them, firing on all cylinders. And as we talked about 
in that Edmonton Saskatchewan game, does Edmonton have the defense and the the stars on that defense to be able to contain Bully by Mitchell? At this point, I don't think they do. Coming up against a provincial rival and a team that has just made a plethora of change in their roster, I think that Calgary should be able to take this game easily. I do see Bo Levi Mitchell gaining some momentum. He seems to maybe be back in that confidence. We certainly saw that after the game. He was very confident after the final game, and I think he'll be able to lead his team to this win, and I do think they'll cover. The Elks, Chris Jones, cutting several players after the loss against Saskatchewan. I don't know what... I thought training camp is where you decide what your roster is. It's a lot of changes again, and that's just the way Jones works. He wants people of a certain mold. Brent Monson is starting to get that defense together. They're still giving up a lot of yards. They're still giving up too many points, but they are getting key turnovers when they need them. And as we alluded to before, they're finding ways to win, and you just can't ask anything more of a team. And once you get that bug... Stampeders at home, how can you go against them? The only thing that I would say is a problem in this game, 8.5 favorites for Calgary. That's a huge number. It is a huge number. I took them to cover that because I do think that Calgary has an offense that's going to go. I think Edmonton will be in a bit of a funk after losing so many players. Calgary should be able to step it up. I'm thinking... Calgary is a team on the rise. This is their opportunity to show that they will indeed be a force in the West. An eight and a half point spread is large. However, Edmonton hasn't produced a lot of points so far this season. So if you compare what your expectation is of them on offense versus what Bo Levi Mitchell has turned in in week number two, it's not unrealistic to think that the Stampeders are going to win by a touchdown and a field goal. Can they cover the eight and a half? I'm not so sure. I think Calgary doesn't cover, but still wins. Now we move to Saturday, the late game. BC and Toronto. BC, of course, the big game against Edmonton, rolling up 59 points, 26 to 29 passing. And Nathan Rourke is going to start his second game, this time against the Toronto Argonauts who are coming off a big win themselves, maybe feeling a little bit fortunate. Time zone change for the Argonauts. It's going to be quite a bit later for them to start that kickoff than it will be for the BC Lions. BC at home. It's sort of the same question that I think we have with Winnipeg. Winnipeg has only played Ottawa. That's a very small frame of reference to know where they are in the world. Same with Ottawa. Is Ottawa that great and Winnipeg was fortunate. It's one of those things you don't know until you start playing other teams. So you see, see how this all meshes. BC's in the same boat. Saskatchewan struggled with Edmonton. BC clobbered them. For British Columbia, this is going to be a big game to determine where they fit in this early part of the season. They're minus 4.5 favorites. Again, these Odds that we come up with are sort of an amalgam of about six or seven different betting sites. They're always within about a half a point of each other. I'm picking the Lions at home to cover. Out of all the games this week, I really wanted to pick an upset on this one. But for reasons you allude to, Don, Toronto moving down uh, to play a 10 p.m. game, 
Uh, I think that's going to be difficult. I think BC on that opening one looked like gangbusters, but I'm not sure that they're quite that good. I think it was the momentum and the energy of the, the stadium, and I do wonder what will happen this weekend. I don't expect there to be the same type of crowd and the same enthusiasm. I'd love to take Toronto, but I just can't do it at that range. This will be an extremely close game. I'm going to pick BC, but I don't think they'll cover. McLeod Bethel-Thompson in their first game was average as the starting quarterback. Nathan Rourke in their first game of the season was amazing at quarterback. I believe they will continue some of that momentum. BC's offense, the receiving core is very scary. James Butler had a career game in week number one. He seems to be running on all cylinders. The question mark I had coming into this season was Nathan Rourke. He did nothing but impress me in that first game as well. So I believe that BC will win this one and they are going to cover the spread. This is going to be the telling game for Nathan Rourke. And if he comes out and puts 28 or 30 more points on the board, he is for real. The difference between BC and most other clubs, you can key on the top receiver of most other clubs. You can't do that in BC. There are far too many great receivers on that team. You're going to be spread thin in your secondary, a lot of single coverage. That's why I like the Lions. You're right. Brian Burnham and Lucky Whitehead are definitely the 1A and 1B receivers on this core. And even if you're starting to cover those guys, they've got a six foot five receiver named Javon Katoy out there that can make some big plays for them as well. In the past, we talked about the offensive line for BC, and I'm just not sure that they're as strong as they seem to be in that first game. Certainly, James Butler had an outstanding first half. Things slowed down a little in the second half, but if they can come through and have the same kind of game, I think this could be a big game for BC, but I still think Toronto's going to come in and show us that BC maybe wasn't quite as good as they looked in that first game. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbean and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again the Third Down Gamble podcast. Audio worth watching. <laughs>